0: And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel Six, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf with very special guest Ursula Vernon on the Coot Street Podcast. And welcome, Ursula. I think we <laughs> talked to you on a couple of these little short,
1: ten-minute things that we did during COVID and again last year. But this is the first time we've had you on a full hour-long podcast, and it's
2: oh yeah, thank you. I'm delighted to be here.
1: It's been way too long, and we decided the timing was. About this summer is good because you had uh, a a book coming out uh, just at I think the end of March maybe.
2: Yes, Um, yes, I think that uh, was House with Good Bones. March seems so long ago now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We're halfway through the summer, but but then in August there is Thornhead, and I'll start off by saying these are two of the best books I've read this year. Um, and I decided that this year has to be what will become known as the thorn period in Ting Fisher's work, because these are both very thorny books.
2: They are. It was uh, it was kind of accidental that uh, uh, thorns wound up being the the theme because I sold Thorn Hedge way before I even wrote House with Good Bones, but because publishing is like it is, they, uh, they came out together and one is about roses and one is about the brambles around Sleeping Beauty's castle. And so, yeah, it... it was a very thorn-related book series year? I don't know.
1: <laughs> I
0: think you've got a thing going here. <laughs> uh, so, so tell us to sort of give us some perspective. You know, you. I mean, Gary talks about you having a couple of books out this year, and that's true, and and more more coming next year. And a co- who has wild, stock, wild life in the background? Whose dog is that? That's
2: like- that's my hound. Ah. Uh, she she sounds like a. a horde of, of uh, demon wolves that run through a voice scrambler. I think the UPS guy has come to kill us all in our sleep.
0: Well, it's great to have you both on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> I guess, let me start. I mean, your first book comes out way back in 2007. There's something like 30 novels since then, which is quite a lot. Um, but obviously yes, some of them are I, longer, I, longer them than are others. There's, short there's children's books. Yeah, you know, and there's YA in
2: there.
1: And um, actually, my, my, my partner Dale was a fan of yours way before there was a, a King picture at all, going back to the web comics. Uh, oh, so we've yes. got web comics, uh, we've got illustrations, we've got YA. YA. Um, all, all, all we need is I don't know Andrew Lloyd Webber to do a production of something you wrote.
2: <laughs> I wouldn't object. Uh, it, okay, I'm going to commit a terrible sin. Is Andrew Lloyd Webber still alive?
1: He was yes, yes he is. I saw him on television. Okay. Uh, Two nights ago, just got a new right, I musical mean, mean, on, yes. I mean, on television.
2: Absolutely, <laughs> I, I cannot wait for the the all wombat uh, Andrew Lloyd
0: yes.
2: <laughs> extravaganza. I was
0: actually thinking of you the other no, a little while ago because I was down at a friend's house in Victoria about three weeks ago. Uh, Jack Dan and his wife Jenny Webb's House, and they have a wombat at the bottom of their garden, their very own.
2: That's wonderful. I I love them from afar because I do not live in Australia.
0: (laughs) Though they did have a tendency to dig onto the house, which was a problem you can appreciate. But tell me, going back to 2007 and before, where did Ursula Vernon, the writer, begin? And how did she turn into T. Kingfisher, who now seems to be the most public of your writing voices at the moment?
2: (laughs) Well, uh, I wanted to be a writer as a little kid because, I mean, I think most of us do, and that I wanted to be a marine biologist. And uh, because I think there was a stretch during, if you were in grade school in the 80s, that you wanted to be a marine biologist. I don't know why it was something in the cultural gestalt. And then I uh, went to college to... Uh, Decided that, uh, well, was one thing and another that there was no money in being a writer, so I would become an artist because Mm -hmm. I (laughs) make poor life choices. (laughs) Yes, yes, the uh, the just rolling in wealth, and uh, but it sort of worked out. I I did a webcomic for a long time and through a and and through a weird series of events that could not be duplicated, I imagine, I, I acquired an agent uh, who because a friend of mine who was a romance author told a funny story about an artist friend of hers at a dinner and managed to amuse the agent next to her it was like, "Oh, does she do gra- an artist? Does she do graphic novels? Those are really hot right now." And uh, my friend was like, yes, I think she does. Cause I'd been doing a web comic for years at that point. And she contacted me and said, do you want a literary agent? And she has never let me forget that my response was, yeah, sure. What the hell? Because <laughs> I had no idea. This wasn't a thing that I knew anything about. So I got the agent kind of by accident. She didn't expect, I, she was like, I've looked through your stuff. Uh, you, you have all of these paintings and then you write these weird little stories underneath and they're delightful do you think you could write a children's book and i said sure yeah that's a thing i could probably do i mean i'd been always wanted to be a writer right and so i uh but i was used to art time turnarounds and working with art directors so i said yeah can i have six weeks because that was that, that seemed like a good amount of time for a book cover And she, I believe, thought I was joking because she said, why don't you take eight? And I was like, yeah, that's great. (laughs) Then I'll have two weeks to do edits. (laughs) And uh, well, it was a short book, as it turned out. It was only like 15,000 words. So I wrote it in the six weeks and handed it in. And she was like, "Okay, that was not actually what I was expecting to happen. And... (laughs) she sold it to a publisher. And I was like, yeah, this writing gig is awesome. I could do this. She's like, yeah, this is sure. (laughs) Let's see what happens. And uh, it kind of went like that. Uh, Much of my career is predicated on not having any idea how anything works. And so uh, I I think there's a famous line, all you need in life is ignorance and confidence, and then success (laughs) is sure. And anyway, so I had a career as a children's book author and was doing uh, these hybrid graphic novel comic things uh the Dragon Breath series and the Hamster princess series and The problem is when you're a children's book author, they keep telling you things you can't do uh mm-hmm. we we had to have the the uh we are not allowed to solve our problems with arson talk
0: and the <laughs>
2: Look, there are a bunch of situations in in, uh, fantasy novels that can be solved just by burning down the haunted house. Uh, But you're Mm -hmm. apparently not supposed to do that because children are impressionable. Anyway, (laughs) after a couple years of this, all the things I couldn't do were just getting compressed tighter and tighter into, (laughs) like, diamond. And finally, this happens to a lot of children's book authors. I was like... I'm going to write a book for adults and I'm going to do anything I want and no one will be able to stop me. And I did. And the problem was that uh, uh, you don't want to, uh, brand separation is a real problem with children's books. Particularly I was writing books for kids who often don't like to read very much, uh, which is why the the graphic novels were uh, uh, a big hit because there's, uh, you get a lot of kids who view like a wall of text as an instrument of torture. But oh, yeah. This had yeah. lots of sort of comic sections that you could like read to and it was sort of a landing place, uh, which is great if you had uh, dyslexia and a lot of other related conditions. So, but the thing is, if you write books like that and parents who want their kids to read, you're like, oh my God, he'll read this author. I will buy him everything this author has ever written without looking to see if, for example, it's an adult horror novel. So, yeah. uh you only have to do the slow motion new no, across the library. Once I, uh, I picked T. Kingfisher as a pen name, started self-publishing some just random works. And uh, then one day made a joke on Twitter about how I had made a terrible elevator pitch about a book to my agent. And God helped me, an editor who I knew was like, is this a real book and is it available? And, I, and that was the Twisted Ones. And I was like, yes. Yes, it. It. it, I I had pitched it as uh, the Andy Griffith Show meets the Blair Witch Project, and I was like, "This is you know, impossible to sell." And then, yeah, and it sold. And I was like, "Okay, so didn't expect that." And here I am, uh, being T Kingfisher more than Ursula Vernon, and now Motion stays. But
0: how? Well, certainly, Twitter has had a real influence for creating works and getting them sold that people never thought would sell. But I'm curious listening to you talk about your career and your experience, because you've said the the way you describe it, authors are always asked when they've been successful what the magic, you know, what the magic trick is to being successful. And I've seen you say in interviews, don't try and reproduce my career because some of the things are based on insane coincidences, opportunities that just popped up wildly. But Listening to you, that's not what I hear, right? What I hear is someone asked you an absurd question and you said yes. How important is that? Is that to being the real recipe for success? <laughs> believing that you, well, first of all, saying yes, taking the risk and being willing to do it, and believing that you're allowed to.
2: I think that uh, my ego wants to say lots. Uh, and it's one of those things where, on the one hand, yes, uh, I think there's, there is a lot to be said for just being like, I will do the thing. Um, Sometimes there wasn't even a question. The first thing I self-published was just a, I've never done this, let's see what happens. Uh, But I am also sort of viscerally aware of how many extremely talented people I know who languish in obscurity. And I feel like uh, uh, I know that they just haven't gotten whatever weird break I did. So... It's it's a toss up between you have to seize the weird break when it comes, but you also have to get that that chance, whatever it is. Uh, and I mean, I, I could torment myself at night by uh, thinking of all of the the strings of of causality that lead to one person being in the right place to tell a joke at a agent lunch and. Uh, uh, and occasionally I do when I manage to trace it all back to an MMO in 1999, uh, <laughs> which yeah. Uh, so yes, if you want to replicate my career, as a friend of mine said, the first thing you have to do is time travel back to 1999.
1: Well, one <laughs> of the things I, I I think you said this uh, on on Twitter not long ago. You were you were talking about a completely absurd, frivolous idea which doesn't look like it ought to work at all, um, and. And you were referring to Hogfather, if I recall correctly.
2: Yes, yes.
1: And the, I, I the thought about, of Hogfather, yeah. Because Hogfather, as a pitch, makes no sense whatsoever. And, it, it really doesn't. And I could say the same thing about A Wizard's Guide to Defensive Baking. It's just it's just a silly idea. You can't make that idea work, can you? Uh,
2: no, I I, I agree. It, it's, and some of that is, okay, you can boil any story down to sounding absurd if you want. But oh, yeah. on the other end of that... I think that if you boil down, we're killing Santa Claus using the tooth fairy, that's an absurd premise, no matter, you know, no matter what, it's just, it's just, it's a brilliant book at the same time. I mean, other, other books that are, you know, as good or not as good have much more sane premises. Like, um, I don't know, uh, alien comes to earth and humanity has to deal with it or whatever. Oh, that's yeah. a- Normal premise.
1: I mean, in our <laughs> work. But one, one of the things, I mean, that uh, one of the things I'm fascinated by are books that ought not to work when you describe them, and uh, and, and you, I can say the same thing about Thornhedge. We'll get to in a minute. But uh, one of the books I liked a couple of years ago was Kelly Barnhill's When Women Were Dragons, and it's based on the premise that several hundred thousand women just turned into dragons in the mid 1950s, and it just sounds like. I If I were an editor in an elevator, I would get out at the next floor if I heard that. But it's, a, <laughs> it's a terrific novel. It's an absolutely terrific novel. Um,
2: oh, yeah. Uh, uh, Towing Jehovah. And I've forgotten the Jehovah. author's yeah. name. Yeah. Uh, uh, God dies and his more, body you know, in plummets more, yeah. In, yeah into the uh, ocean and uh, has to be, I think, towed to Antarctica so it doesn't start to rot. That is a completely batshit premise. I didn't ask if I could swear on this podcast.
1: You okay. yeah. uh, can Okay, good. I guess, but that brings up. uh, It also brings up some influences, and the and Terry Pratchett has to be there because there are some very creepy, disturbing parts of his novels. But the voice is so delightful all the time that you can, you you can get this sense of I'm having a lot of fun, and this is hilarious. And it's also disturbing at a deeper level, which is pretty much what you're doing in A House with Good Bones. Funny as hell yeah. until it isn't.
2: Uh, oh, yeah. And, and people, I, I'm, I'm always being asked things like, uh, how do you make horror novels so funny? And I always think, how do you not? Because, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know whether or not there are atheists and foxholes but i know there are a lot of comedians like (laughs) i just i just finished re-watching mash uh the whole (laughs) series because i remembered it was brilliant and i had watched it when i was much younger and i'm like i'm an adult now i bet i would enjoy watching that and it's a hilarious you know show 99 of the time and then 1 it's maudlin and and horrific and uh it's people in under extreme stress are funny uh, because it's that, or we go screaming berserk. So yeah, I, I think I think there's some of that, and I also think, at least in like Pratchett's case, uh, he had things he wanted to say, and he could get people to listen if he was funny. Mm-hmm. That's a good
1: way of putting it, and that's something that Neil Gaiman has also said about him, which is why I'm looking forward to the second season of Good Omens. But that's a separate. Oh, thing. oh yeah. So, how do you feel about having this success? As a horror writer, that seems like a label, and it's you seem to be doing very well in that world. And as far as I can tell, the horror people, who are not like science fiction and fantasy people, I've been to horror conventions as well, they've embraced you in in, in a way. Did this surprise you that your career turned out uh, in this direction? Uh, I mean, obviously, you've got more, more or less classic fantasy uh, and, and uh, the Paladin series, for example. But
2: Uh, I think it surprised me more than it surprised anyone else, because for years, people have been telling me that there were horrific elements in (laughs) in the books. I'm like, this is a light, fluffy romance. And they're like, that book is full of severed heads. (laughs) And I was like, okay, yes, but it's still a light, fluffy romance. Just there are severed heads in it. Uh, So to a large extent, I think um, I was always sort of leaning on horror in the fantasy, but. I'd never think about it as being horrific. Uh, A lot of times I will be trying to explain something to people and I'll be like, it's not scary. It's just interesting. (laughs) And and that's usually the cue for most of the people who know me well to just start backing away and being like, no, no, no. It is interesting. Uh, Yeah. So I I think uh, being a a horror author was maybe inevitable uh, and, other people saw that way before I did. Um, but as for, and, and the thing is, I've still never been to a horror convention. I came into horror completely sideways. I didn't even read it all that much as a kid. Uh, I mean, I, I think I read Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, which is one of the er texts of horror. And... Uh, I went through a phase in college where I read everything by Stephen King and about half the books by Dean Koontz. And from that, I took away that the dog always lives through my books. Um, <laughs> but and I've met some lovely people in horror, and and they're all wonderful. Uh, and I, I mean, I'm sure there are terrible people in horror. I just you know don't meet them. Uh, having met a lot of people in uh, in children's books, I, I have to say uh, horror authors seem a lot more chill. I think because they get it all out. And, uh, which is something that, that my husband occasionally says, people are like, does it worry you that you're married to someone who's coming up with that? And he's like, no, as long as it's out on the page and she's not, you know, (laughs) it's not just fermenting in there. I I'm perfectly safe. So, uh, yeah, I, it's neat.
1: (laughs) If you didn't grow up reading horror, what did you grow up reading?
2: A lot of fantasy, uh, a lot of fantasy. I read, uh, uh, all the Dragonlance books. Uh, and I, I have read a lot of Star Trek novels. Um, we didn't have the next generation until I was like nine or 10. So I read every Star Trek novel forever. My father had all of them and and I would read them. And uh, which and there's some really good uh, science fiction authors who did a lot of Star Trek tie-in novels, like Diane Duane did. Diane uh, Duane
1: did. Joe Haldeman did one. Uh, did. John M. Ford. John yeah. Ford, yeah, right.
2: Right. Yeah. And uh, I think that wound up being a big influence because one thing about uh, the Star Trek novels, uh, the, the the crew of the Enterprise, at least they are always very decent people. And a lot of my books tend to f- uh, feature, you know, people who are fundamentally decent, who are stuck in a horrible situation trying to fix things. Um, so that was probably a, a big subconscious influence. Uh, I Watership Down. I I read every talking animal book I could get my hands on, but at the time that was about four of them. So kids these days, they don't have to walk uphill both ways. <laughs> <They're>
1: <laughs> That's one of the things I was curious about because um, there's, I mean, I, I thought you must have read some science fiction. There are a couple of allusions to science fiction writers in A House With Good Bones. You mentioned uh, Heinlein at one point, L. Ron Hubbard kind of shows up in it. There's even a lot-
2: line- yeah, I, I have only actually ever read the first Battlefield Earth book and, um, well, and eventually even I'll recover. I was about
1: reading him. I was just thinking about <laughs> knowing he was there. Um, but, but, you, but there's this fascination with science which comes out in the horror novels. I mean, there's a lot of entomology in a house. You are now famous for having given long lectures about slime molds and, and other interesting sort of natural things. I was wondering if you read... Naturalists. If you read, what are the what is this biological entomological fascination? Oh yeah, come? yeah,
2: uh, absolutely. I did. I um, I read a lot of Stephen Jay Gould, and uh, uh, when I was in in high school, you know, the library had books on punctuated equilibrium and whatnot, and I for a long time thought I would be a paleontologist. I uh, actually spent most of a summer digging up ichthyosaurs. Oh, geez. and yeah, in Nevada, which was. Uh, uh, Fascinating, and I am still fond of them and ammonites. Uh, so, th- there were, I, for a long time, I wanted to be a scientist, and then I got into college and uh, was frankly, my math skills are exceedingly subpar. And uh, yeah, I, I could not make it work. So, I went into anthropology, which I figured was kind of close, and I could focus on the archaeology and the paleoanthropology, and then graduated with no idea what the hell I was going to do and got a job as one does to, Long, in order it's to it's not a, starve. A
1: shot, complete shot in the dark. Did you ever read any of the essays or books by Lauren Isley? Um, uh, the nice, it's not, uh, the, the, examples? Uh, a lot of, a lot of what you're talking about. I'm thinking about the, the vultures in uh, a house with good bones. He, he was, he was somebody else who was an anthropologist. He taught at uh, Penn state, I think for a while. But he was a beautiful writer. And some of his nonfiction, it's all nonfiction, but some of it reads like horror fiction. And he's so fascinated with the behavior of birds and this sort of thing. Um, and I thought I, I, I thought maybe there was an echo of some of the things that had horrified him that were horrifying you.
2: Uh, it's not ringing a bell, but now I want to go look him up. Uh, he, he sounds uh, very interesting. Uh, oh, uh, tell yeah, you,
1: go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> This is your show. I was going to lecture on Laura and I. No, no, please lecture, lecture. No. No. (laughs) Well, okay, one thing. Uh, He has one essay about three times he failed to become a good anthropologist. And one, he he was climbing out in the Sierra Nevadas or something. He came across a rare bird's nest of some sort. And he thought, I could could take this rare egg and make my reputation with it. But he couldn't do it because he knew somebody was going to come back. That's not the scary part. The scary part was also in the southwest. He was in a cave, uh going with one of these miners helmets on, and he's deep inside the cave and he and it becomes deadly silent and he feels little things plopping on his arms and he can't figure out what they are. He doesn't know where he doesn't know exactly what's in the cave except he knows that spiders live in. And so he turns his lamp up to the ceiling of the cave which is only like four feet above him. And it's a carpet of black spiders undulating and dropping off in pieces. And and he decided at that point, I'm not going to do whatever it was I set out to do here. I'm really
2: <laughs> I know that that there's a whole ecosystem that shows up on the floor of bat caves. That kind of that, thing, things yeah. that, that live on the uh the the uh droppings and then things that and uh, scavenge dead bats that fall down. And they're like you get enormous centipedes and weird spiders and all kinds of cool things. I did watch a lot of nature documentaries as a kid, now that you mentioned it. Uh, nature okay, is me, fascinating. If they had like a job that was just general naturalist, the way that they used to, when you could be, when you didn't have yeah. to specialize in one thing and you could just be the, you know, sort of gentleman naturalist or whatever, I uh, I would love to do that because so many things are just interesting. Mm-hmm.
1: You're so close to being a science fiction writer.
2: Oh <laughs> uh, well, a science fiction writer. I, <laughs> I, I've written a few. Uh, the... Uh, the problem is that uh, science fiction. Sooner or later, I I run into the uh, the I'm trying to make I, I'm trying to be too logical, or I'm trying to stick to the world as it is. And damn it, I want to do this thing. Okay, so I'd have to explain that. And I, I think I may be like too rigorously honest, or too this is a fact I know, so that is a wall. Like I could never have done warp space because. You can't go faster than that, damn it. So I would have to, you know, sit and write devote half the book to going faster than the speed of light and because otherwise you know you,
1: what you just described is a major, major plot point in a house with good bones. You have a scientist who has to try to make everything fit what her scientific view of the world is. And and, and so she's just pushed to the point. And even then there's she's it's a great it's a great word which I did not know. She's an archaeologist. Archeo-entomologist.
2: entomologist right?
1: yes. And there is such a job, I take
2: it. I, yes, I, I believe I know one on Twitter. Okay. I, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I know a bunch of entomologists on Twitter. I love science Twitter. They are just the most fun. And I had a great experience. Um, I went on, uh, I was talking to a uh, friend of mine who uh, studies beetles. And I happened to be in Pittsburgh. And she was like, hey, you're here. I work at the Carnegie Museum of Natural History's uh, entomology department. Do you want a behind-the-scenes tour? And I'm like, yes, of course, I want this. Uh, you know, uh, who would not want this? And so I went, and it was it was a great tour. She's showing me all of the you know the huge racks with you know you pull out trays of shelves of various insects. It was also uh, that was the place where they filmed the scene in Silence of the Lambs, where they go to the museum and look at the dead set moths. Yeah, it's that particular museum, and. Uh, I was was deeply saddened that I had finished house with good bones before I did this because she told me about this device that naturalists used to use called a, a caterpillar inflator which when you when you put a caterpillar on a pin uh it uh, they're squishy they they tend to rot so you had to clean out your caterpillar oh but then they just kind of flatten. So back in the day, you would buy like a patented caterpillar inflator for your insect collection, and you would reinflate your caterpillar on the pin. And I'm like, I'm going, this is the greatest fact I've ever been exposed to. Oh my god, I have to like, put this in a book somehow. Uh, Yeah, so... Uh, the world is just full of a lot of really neat stuff.
1: <laughs> I'm, now I'm wondering if you can find one on eBay or something. Uh, how many of those things could they even manufacture? How many? What's, what's the market size of caterpillars? Well, the flavor?
2: wonderful thing is that uh, there was kind of the equivalent of like the boy's life. Uh, bo- uh sort of thing at the time which was how to become you know your your home and the you're an amateur entomologist for like uh, people starting collections and they had instructions on how to build your own home caterpillar inflator so <laughs> if you can get a hold of one of those books you can you, you won't even need eBay
0: <laughs> and i'm sure there are other uses for caterpillar inflators we haven't considered at Don't this point go there <laughs> i
2: possibly i i shudder to think
0: I am curious to ask you in a sort of slightly more serious way. Looking superficially at your bibliography, T. Kingfisher seems to be a lot busier right now than Ursula Vernon is. Do you find your yes. miswriting you miss writing as Ursula Vernon to get us a kind of balance, or is it just things you do that happen to fall into those pots?
2: Uh, God, I, I, I wish I could say, you know, yes to either of those. The simple fact is the kids book, uh, publisher I was working with my, during the pandemic, uh, everything shut down. Mm-hmm. And so T. Kingfisher was getting a lot more work and I, I have, in fact, I recently handed in a children's book and hopefully it will, uh, it will come out, uh, in the next, uh, well, God knows when, but, uh. The uh I think it's just that uh uh, T Kingfisher is uh is busier and has more contracts outstanding, so that's some of it. I do occasionally write uh uh sort of YA books as T Kingfisher, like Wizard's Guide to Defensive Baking was one, and uh which you know is is always fun to do. I don't know why it doesn't occur to me to do those as Ursula Vernon, I suppose, because I'm just used to being T Kingfisher at this point.
0: Does does the sort of the The personal ego thing ever make you feel like you wished you'd flipped the the pseudonyms the other way because Kingfisher is getting an awful lot of press, but, you know, it's not always directly sort of for you. I mean, I think about what happened with Tom Holt and K.J. Parker when Parker was winning awards and stuff.
2: Uh, The ego doesn't so much because, I mean, it's all me. I I feel the same. What uh, gets me is I wish I'd started with a pen name because... Uh, There are so many things on the internet where I was Ursula Vernon and then suddenly I was a children's book author and I, uh, for example, had to have my entire website redone in a panic because... Uh, my old website was an art website, and I had nudes on it and things. And all of a sudden, you know, small children were going to be looking for Slavernan. I was like, "Oh crap! I have misjudged." So,
0: yeah, I, uh, I kind of
2: wish I had start. I had started as uh, the kid. If I was doing it again, the kids' books would all be, you know, T Kingfisher and Urs Slavernan would be doing the other stuff. But that's. That's purely just branding and ease of, you know, sure. not trying to eradicate every penis you've ever drawn off the internet.
1: Was there ever any sense of, of, of more gender ambiguity by using an initial like T Kingfisher? Because C. L. Moore had to use initials, she felt, to sell stories. Lee Brackett sold stories because nobody knew that Lee was a woman's name. Uh, but that was not because nobody's really ever uh, been ignorant of the fact that t kingfisher was you right so it's not as though you uh, had to
2: every now and again i'll get somebody going oh my god you're t kingfisher really and i'm i'm always charmed but uh yeah it i think i wanted it to be sort of gender ambiguous just on the off chance that it turned out you know my sales were through the roof uh That didn't really happen, but uh, it was sort of, uh, I think that was a factor, but not, it's not like it was in the seventies.
1: Yeah, I'm sure it's not. Um, That kind of brings us to to Thornhedge, which is, and and the question about that is, why didn't anybody else think of that? I mean, uh, the basic premise, I don't think it's a spoiler to say the basic premise is to keep the princess in, not to keep the knights out. And. I've been reading a lot of uh, fairy tale versions. I mean, going back to Angela Carter in the last couple of years alone, there are collections of stories by by, by Dora Goss. There's, um, um, oh, in, uh, Jane Yolen has done this sort of thing. Uh, Alex Harrow has done this sort of thing. So revising and rethinking fairy tales has been going on for centuries, literally. And I actually know people who are authorities on fairy tales I can't think of another example of doing that particular re- reversal on Sleeping Beauty, which I think is kind of amazing. Yay! I,
2: mean, <laughs> that, I may be that's wrong; awesome. somebody
1: may correct me on that. But I thought that just is brilliant, frankly.
2: Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know if there's like some deep psychology involved, <laughs> or if it's just that. I mean, uh, Sleeping Beauty uh, the princess is such a good victim and has there's so much angst you could wring from that that nobody like that you don't always think to go the other way i i don't know what it is i just uh it just seemed like an interesting idea and well, idea that- uh, i don't know why it, i i don't know why that didn't come up before it seems obvious now but
1: <laughs> I mean, but yeah, i was saying the same thing i mean there are versions in which she's a spoiled princess or a spoiled brat or she turns out not to be worth waking up but but not she's never as terrifying as she is here
2: oh thank you uh yeah i i don't know it's uh uh you'd think after well i'm thinking of maleficent where we reimagined uh, where you know uh, the the evil fairy godmother is the heroine but at the same time it's the the father who's the evil king or whatnot. Yeah. Uh, they still don't make the princess evil so Maybe she's just so young that it was hard for it's hard for people to swallow that you know the uh, the sixteen year old or whatever is going to be a dangerous psychopath. It's it's hard to say.
0: When did you start work on Thorn, Thorn Hedge? What are its origin?
2: Uh, actually, it was uh, I had just finished the Sleeping Beauty story in uh, Hamster Princess, which I wrote as Ursula Vernon. Where, which is based on uh, uh, the heroine, who is a very fierce warrior princess type and also a hamster, uh, is, the, uh, is the beauty from Sleeping Beauty who uh, figures out that because the curse ensures that she will uh, be put into a sleep on her 12th birthday, she is therefore effectively immortal because the curse protects her until that can happen. So she takes up sword fighting and cliff diving. And... Uh, I just I thought that would be fun to write just because we see a lot of the princess saving herself stuff. But very rarely do we see princesses the muscle. And I, I was just I wanted to go full out Zeno warrior princess. You know, she's the one with the sword. And it was a lot of fun to write. But I found myself with this story and writing it at the same time. Part of my brain was like. You could go a totally different direction with this. Like you could, you could go. Like here's this story, and you went one way, and that's fine. But you could also just go, and. <laughs> Oh,
0: I, I, just, I... It's also a that, good example of what... I'm, I'm sorry, did you... I was going to say that's interesting because the princess is a muscle idea. It must have had a moment because I can think of at least two other stories where it happened in the last two years because Tamsin Muir basically did the same thing in Princess Floralinda and the Forty Flight Tower, though a very different princess and a different thing where the princess becomes the monster. And Alex Harrow does it to some degree in A Spindle Splintered. And so I wonder if there's that feeling where you get. A generation of people reading fairy tale tellings and retellings and re re retellings who end up bringing a generational perspective to that asks totally different questions than were asked before.
2: Yeah, I think most people, at least in my generation and certainly the ones uh, after, I mean, I'm 46, so, you know, I have, I'm Gen X, don't I? Uh, I have mm. no idea how many generations we have post this. Uh, the, we are we are already sort of past the princess as the victim in the tower, and now we're almost bored with the princess with the self-rescuing princess because that had a huge moment. And now that moment is done. And if you just do that, it feels almost like, okay, yeah, but we've done this already. Uh that was part of the problem I had. The movie Brave, which was a very fun movie in many regards. When I watched it, I'm like, this would have been awesome about 15 years ago, but we've already, we have, we have trodden that ground flat. And so now it's like, okay, what does it mean to be the one, it's the person who rescues yourself? You know, what what if you're, what if you're just a thug? You know, what if you've got (laughs) this and, and the uh, indomitable courage, and in you drag, you know, the the your sidekick along who's, you know, a sort of emo hamster. Uh, but, uh, okay, the emo hamster is probably pretty. But, yeah, I, I think there are some with, with other expectations. So, like,
0: yeah.
2: I was never going to do a Sleeping Beauty where someone goes and rescues Sleeping Beauty because, like, that would... I mean, I could do that. Oh, wait, now I'm thinking of all the ways I could do that. And make, uh, okay. <laughs> Well, I should never say I can't do something because then I'm immediately like, but wait. I mean one of the things but that
1: fascinates me is 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 the malleability of fairy tales is always astonishing to me. I mean, there was uh there's a whole anthology by a guy named Jack Zipes, who's one of the great fairy tale scholars called The Trials and Tribulations of Little Red Riding Hood. It's a huge not huge, but it's a sizable anthology with nothing but variations on Little Red Riding Hood, ranging from Angela Carter to James Thurbury. Um but one of the things that is another technique that seems to work is shifting points of view. In other words, you've got a, a limited number of, a limited cast in the Sleeping Beauty story. And uh, one kind of classic story, one of Theodora Goss's stories called A Rose in Twelve Petals, she takes different viewpoints. That she takes the viewpoint of the spindle, for heaven's sake, and the viewpoint of the dog that falls asleep. I don't think in that she even takes the viewpoint of the, quote, bad fairy, um, and then turns that character into a, a kind of, I don't know, screwball comedy romance. Uh, she, 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 she's totally is, is a great character, I think. Uh, and I think what you were saying earlier about your books being sort of sweet, fluffy love stories, in a way, this is a sweet, fluffy love story in which priests get murdered and, 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 and uh, corpses get reanimated. I'm not giving you too much. Horrible things happen in it, but it's still... Uh, a kind of uh, ugly duckling love story that. Uh...
2: Oh, I, I, I keep describing it as sweet. I think it is absolutely one of the sweetest things I've written recently. I mean, and I, there are a lot of people who read my fantasy who don't read horror who are like, you know, I love yeah. your stuff, but I can't do horror, which I totally respect. I mean, my father's like that. And, uh, there might have been a time in my life when I would have thought the same um, that I started reading horror and was usually like, oh, yeah, I see where you're going with that. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. It's it's very different once you're in the field professionally. Uh, it I think it ruins a lot of your joy in some regards. Uh, it's very cool. hard to watch uh, for me to watch horror movies these days because I'm just like, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. uh-huh. Uh huh. Like, I watched the first Saw movie, which is one of the great seminal science fiction or not science fiction horror movie, you know, slasher movie things. And I watched it for 10 minutes and was like, nobody's checked to see if the guy on the floor is dead. And my husband was like, really? I'm like, am I wrong? And he's like, no spoilers the guy uh, you just yeah you once you know where uh, stage magicians probably I think enjoy watching other stage magicians if they do it well and you're like okay that was a really good use of that trick or that was great sleight of hand and so a lot of times uh reading things I go damn that was really good sleight of hand I've forgotten completely what your question was well it's it's
1: it's, uh, I I have two but we're heading in a more interesting direction now because you're saying you know the beats. You learn uh, how to do the beats. I had a conversation once with Peter Straub, who also can write some very funny bits in Very Dark things, And he'd written a story. I forgot what it was. And uh, he was selling it to some horror anthology. And he was very interested in the characters, the way they were developing, all, all, all the stuff that goes into a mainstream short story. And then he said, basically, I forgot to put the scary bits, scary bits in. <laughs> So he, <laughs> and he said, but I'll do that tomorrow because he know, he knows how to do that. In other words, there's a point at which you learn the choreography, uh, but there's a point at which the choreography is not the dance either. It's not the whole story. Um, and
2: yeah, I, I think part of my success in horror may have come from ignorance because I, I think you get viewed as a fresh new voice in horror when you have no idea what mistakes you're supposed mm-hmm. to be making. Uh, so and eventually, I suppose you know, if if I keep watching horror movies, I will eventually uh, learn what mistakes I'm supposed to make. But uh, it, fortunately, I my memory's bad, so it hasn't happened yet. But do you uh, think there, yeah, it, yeah, do you Not think Nicole. there
0: are tools you've you've acquired that you've developed that you learned when you were writing books for kids that give you the the wherewithal, the 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 toolkit to write uh, the, the adult novels you write now.
2: I think, yes. Uh, Writing for children is a lot of ways like writing at least thrillers, if not horror. It has to be very immediate. You don't get a lot of time to screw around with backstory and setting. Uh, I mean, you can certainly do horror novels that are just, you know... uh, roll through setting i mean you know look at the haunting of hill house or or but kids are not going to sit down and read gormengast unless they're very particular kids who will then go on to become science fiction writers uh and they don't need my help <laughs> but the uh, you need an immediacy to it and a visceral kind of quality and also horror has this thing going on where things in horror are singular there there's horror. there's only like there's only one monster under the bed in horror and it's the one under your bed uh it's like i the analogy i I sort of use is that santa claus is a horror character because there's only one of him and he does an inexplicable thing uh-huh. and you have sort of a weird personal relationship with him if he was in a fantasy novel, we would have to explain the entire lineage of Santa Claus. There would be elves bonded telepathically with reindeer. And by book four, you know, the turkey warriors of Thanksgiving would be advancing on the fortress of the North Pole. Yeah. And you would have to explain everything. Uh, because otherwise, in fantasy, I feel like I worry we over-explain things because we're afraid. Otherwise, people won't believe the the weird bits. And in horror, it's just there can be one Santa Claus, there can be one monster under the bed, there can be one wolf in the world, and it's the one that's coming for you right this minute.
1: So in other words, world building, as they say in fantasy all the time, is less of an issue in horror because horror uh, One 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 theory of horror is that it's invasive. Horror is our world being invaded by the werewolf or the, or the Santa Claus or whatever it is, and fantasy is— moving into the other world which means you have to build all the infrastructure for that world in order for it to work Um,
2: yeah and it's uh uh, and when you sort of cross the two then you wind up with dark fantasy which i think is basically horror with dragons but it's uh, uh and i've written a fair amount of that myself uh lord knows it's uh the other thing is that i've noticed uh horror novels i write in first person that's how I can tell it's a horror novel, is I write it in first person. If I don't, it's probably fantasy, mm-hmm. uh, which I realize is, is it's almost too good to tell, but it's, when you're in first person, your your point of view is so limited, and you don't know what's around the corner, and in fantasy, I know what's around the corner. Yeah. And, uh everyone else will may know what's around the corner, too. So it's, yeah, the viscerality of it comes out in the point of view.
1: Well, that gets it back to the voice uh, in uh, A House with Good Bones, which is hilarious. And it sounds, I mean, I've heard you speak a few times. It sounds a lot like you.
2: I'll be honest, a lot of my characters sound a lot like me. Uh, I, I just hope that like, my readership is fine with uh, practical middle-aged gardening types, because that's about the only type I have currently, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, please, please. Keep, keep enjoying them because it's going to be real hard to switch.
0: Does this mean that there are some cozy mysteries coming then, or are you going to become a character in a cozy mystery? Murder, she wrote.
2: You know, it's funny you should mention that. I, <laughs> I have been working on a cozy mystery for a while, and it's a fantasy in so much as uh, the two characters are an angel and a devil who are both retired and are solving a crime in a small village And it is, uh, I I enjoy writing it thoroughly. And I was like, this is ridiculous. And then the Good Omens TV show came out and I had read Good Omens when it first came out. So I hadn't really been thinking of it, but then the TV show came out and I was like, oh, well, there goes that idea. Uh, but I, I have occasionally read. Uh, di- I did readings at various events, and people are always like, "Okay, this isn't much like that." And also, you have to finish this. So I'm like, "Well, okay, if I have to." So, uh, yes, there may actually be a cozy mystery in the next few years because it's. <laughs> I, I, my stuff has been described as cozy horror, so I don't know. There's, I think, if you're if you're funny and the dog lives and everyone is not the worst they can possibly be. Uh, you get called cozy.
0: See, I thought that was when you had tea and biscuits, and the same people showed up in the next book.
2: Uh, yeah, but 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 is okay. Is uh. uh... Midsummer Murders, is that a cozy mystery show or not?
0: I don't. Maybe. Well, I, I mean, look at Only Murders in the Building. That's a cozy cozy murder That's mystery. That's definitely
2: cozy. That? And, uh, uh, you know, uh, Rosemary and Time was a cozy. Yeah. Yeah, but Midsummer is like police procedural, but sci- but also yeah. cozy, but cozy, but not is setting.
1: The setting is very limited. It's limited to Happy Valley. It's limited to the village. It's limited to wherever... Murder Hero takes place in Maine and this sort of thing. Cabot Cove. Uh, Cabot Cove, yeah. Uh, the and we're, we're inventing a whole genre of cozy fantastica, I guess. Uh, Brian Aldous's term, cozy catastrophe, referred largely to British uh, apocalyptic novels that all took place in a small village. Um, and maybe the world is threatened, but here we are in Midwich, and Midwich we just have to deal with the Midwich cuckoos. So the rest of the world is falling apart. But as long as we can get the pub opened again, everything will be fine. Um, and so that so you have cozy, uh, apocalyptic uh, catastrophe science fiction novels. You have cozy mysteries. Why not cozy horror? Cozy fantasy. Uh, yeah. yeah. Cozy fantasy doesn't sound like it would work, does it?
2: Oh no! Legends and lattes. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. They're
1: right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
2: There's there's definitely been a few cozy fantasies. Uh, that's that's the only one that's springing to my brain. Although, although but, my thing uh, about
1: legends and lattes, and I don't want to get into this too much, but does it need to be a fantasy? It's about opening a damn coffee shop.
2: I mean, does anything need to be a fantasy? Well, do, okay. uh, do, does, did Stranger to Strangeland need to be science fiction? It was about free love.
0: Well, exactly. And and, and the second uh, Travis Baldry book is basically fixing up a bookshop. Bookshop, yeah. Yep. <laughs> you know, uh, and you're right. I mean, it. it no. does it need to be, Gary? No. But it is because it's it's that, the other way of coming at the question. It's like, why not, you know? Why can't you do a uh, a Miss Marple uh, cozy mystery set in a small fantasy village or in Hobbiton or wherever you want to do it? Why not? And then that's a different thing. And then the real question then is, what else do you get out of that because you put in that different environment? Well, so Pride and Prejudice and Hobbits. Kind of thing. The question I'd ask yeah. now, though, looking at your bibliography is, and this crossed my mind when you're talking about reading Dragonlance and that kind of thing, where's the 700-page T. Kingfisher novel? Because it seems to me <laughs> your focus and your... Uh, approach is tight, straight, straightforward, for want of a better term, uh, s- stories that come in at 300 pages, 250 pages, which is a beautiful thing. Don't get me wrong. But I'm curious, is there somewhere looking in the background, a book? I shouldn't hold it my hands in an audio podcast, but a, a, a shelf uh, bender?
2: Well, uh the the best I got is the Digger Webcomic came in at like eight hundred pages and you can use that book to club someone to death. But it's not quite the same when it's a comic. Uh no, I I I don't write uh doorstops, I think because frankly, I can't keep that many characters straight. Uh I, I in order to write a doorstop, like you have to just keep you have to have the cast of thousands and keep introducing people. And I'm bad with names. So, after there would always be a point reading, you know, The Wheel of Time, where I would be like, okay, let me look up who that is. Uh, And, or the the Game of Thrones, I would always be like, okay, I know we saw this person somewhere. Let me go look it up. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, but I mean, come
0: on. Game of Thrones is just six 300 page novels from a first person point of view that have been interspliced chapter by chapter.
2: I. I guess I could do that, but my publishers would cry. Paper is expensive.
0: Uh, is- now it is. <laughs> you see, this is where you're coming into your own, right? The pandemic is finally delivering to the writer of I shorter watching. works. Okay.
1: One of the things that I, 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 I like about 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 your work is that it is focused, and yeah. the word I like to use is efficient. The story it's telling may open out in all kinds of things. I mean, well, let's go back to uh, A House with Good ones for a moment. There's a whole business about the grandfather. and i I honestly don't know what constitutes spoilers anymore, so stop me if I'm doing anything. But there's the grandfather who gets involved with Aleister Crowley, who gets involved with this guy, Jack Parsons, who seems to be showing up in a half dozen fantasy novels in the last 10 years, who is a real historical character. Uh, I...
2: I I had never heard of him until I was looking something up and then I, I fell down a wiki rabbit hole and was like, oh my God, this guy was a total weirdo. And I was involved with everybody. Everybody. Oh my God.
1: He was. He, he founded yeah. the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and was working with Elyster Crowley and his wife left him for L. Ron Hubbard or something. Uh, but he shows up as a character in a China medieval novel, a uh, minor character. He shows up uh, at least as an illusion in... Uh, Silvia Marina Garcia's new novel, Silver Nitrate. Uh, and so he's like one of these hidden masters of 20th century science fiction and fantasy that everybody knows something about. Um, but the whole story and that whole- Maybe I, we all
2: fell down the same <laughs> rabbit hole.
1: Already. He sounds like a Tim Powers character. Uh, it's it, it, Well, I don't know. Tim Powers, no, his new novel is about the Brontes. So anyway- um, but but yeah, he's one of these characters that just seems to imply a whole epic fantasy out there that nobody has written yet, and the whole Crowley thing uh, is, is is part of that, and 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 I guess Parsons is the link between Crowley and Hubbard, and and that links you to I don't know Heinlein and Campbell and that group. There's there, there's just a whole epic implied to get back to your novel. There's a whole epic implied in that backstory. How do these children? Where do these children? underground children come from um and it's and you explained it perfectly well i mean it, it, it worked perfectly well in your novel and i'm glad you didn't spend 300 pages in the middle of the novel giving that back but you could have
2: and a lot of people would have loved it i think the the utility or the sort of literary utility of people like alistair crowley and uh uh, uh jack parsons is That you can use them as a stand-in for this whole world of the occult. That uh, and and uh, I mean, even Lovecraft did this. Like one of his, he would he would just throw off a mention to you know uh, someone who had written one of the you know forbidden books of whatnot, or uh, uh, you know he would mention Cotton Mather or, or somebody, and that allowed you in a very in a very tight space to draw in this huge world of of sort of uh, uh not so much world building but like uh, uh implication you know he could say uh at the time that so-and-so had an ancestor who was hung at Salem and uh, because at the time the Salem witch trials were not quite, you know, viewed as an epic of mass hysteria. They are now, everyone would know what that meant and it would imply a lot of things and he wouldn't have to sit down and go through all the world building of let's talk about Salem, Massachusetts and so forth. So I think certain famous hub personalities are useful for that, uh, at least for, for space. And um I mean, yeah, you can sit down and make up your own and write 300 pages in order to get there, but sometimes, you know, sometimes it's just easier to say it's like Batman and the Joker than to invent a foundation myth and try to recreate 50 years or 100 years there, Marvel There's Marvel Marvel another
1: Marvel. reason for inventing those or myths in Lovecraft, um, which is... Something I learned once when I had a dinner, I was having dinner with a bunch of people, and Robert Bloch was there. And Bloch was part of the Lovecraft circle, and he's the one who invented one of those fake books. I think it was De Vermes Mysteries by Jacob Prin, which is part of the Lovecraft uh, bibliography. Didn't he
2: get killed? Was he the one who got killed off in Haunter of the Dark? Yes, he did.
1: Robert Blake was his name in Haunter of the Dark. And uh, I said, how did you get involved with making up all these books? And Bloch's response was, none of us were educated. None of us could afford to go to college. We couldn't go to the Harvard Library and look up the real esoteric texts. We didn't know anything, so we just made them up because we didn't have access to research back then. And he said he was sure that was the case of Lovecraft, who was just furious. This is Bloch's interpretation, that Lovecraft was powered by rage at his lack of real education. And so he invented the education he wanted to have. And Block, that, being a you know <laughs> being a, a tough kid from Milwaukee, thought, okay, I can do that too. And so they they, they were not just creating this sort of uh, bibliography of magical horrible books; they were creating their own education because they couldn't have one.
2: I mean, uh, that's that's awesome in many regards and. And now, any of us, you know, if we want, just throw out a mention to the Necronomicon Absolutely. or the
1: they've, they've, they've,
2: and and we pull all of that in too. It's 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 amazing how you know uh, things get carried on. Uh, just, I mean, part of it is the the we are standing on the shoulders of giants, or at least on the shoulders of weirdos. So <laughs> yeah.
0: let's, let's not get too deep into the Lovecraft background. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Looking at stories like Thornhedge, but also at things like A Wizard's Guide to Defensive Baking and everything else, is there a point when you know how much story the idea will bear?
2: Oh, yes, I think so. But the problem is it hits about 60 or 70,000 words in. Uh I usually, well, no, that's not true. I I will, I start a lot of things. And when I start something, I have no idea. I just, I I am, I I never write a synopsis or anything like that. Uh, I just start writing somewhere and see what happens. And sometimes. Uh, that will just go and go and go, and I'll be like, yes, okay, that that is live, and that has stuff to it. And sometimes I'll start it and do a little bit and put it away and never think about it again. And okay, that one clearly did not have. Uh, I don't know if it didn't have story to bear, or if it just didn't, it wouldn't bear my weight. Uh, there's some ideas. Uh, it's almost not the ideas. I think it's the characters that, that make it go. Because I always start with characters and whatnot. And there are characters that I could insert into just about any messed up situation. And I think would carry it off. And there are others that I'm like, you can go this far and past this. Honestly, you'll probably just curl into a heap and sob. And I respect that because I would have been there too. So, uh, yeah, it's it's... It makes it difficult, I think, for my editors because they rarely get the synopsis or the outline. (laughs) I just drop 15,000 words on them. We're like, you want this? You want me to finish it? Send money, I'll finish it. (laughs) (laughs) Let me ask how many.
0: Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, how many things are you working on at once?
2: Uh, Usually at least five. Uh, I, I have ADHD like you would not believe. So uh, I can, it it does not bother me. I know there are people who have to be like heads down on one project very determinedly. Uh, I am not one of them. So there was a point where I had to turn in uh, The Hollow Places, which was an adult horror novel and The Last Hamster Princess book. And I literally had both word docs open and I would write a couple paragraphs on one until I didn't know what came next. And then I would switch to the next one, write a couple of paragraphs. So I didn't know what came next, switch back and be like, okay, now I know what follows that. Uh, that was a little extreme and there were some tight deadlines involved, but uh, no, I, I usually have the, the book that is due the next self uh, like right at the moment, I'm working on uh one for tour. That's a horror novel. That's due next month. And the next Paladin novel, which I want to get out at the end of the year. And I have a book I'm supposed to be editing, uh, which will probably honestly have to wait a little. And then I had this cool idea that has been sort of nagging me. So I have been poking it occasionally when I think of things, like I put a couple thousand words on it today. And then I have the Paladin novel after the next Paladin novel, which I wrote a, like 2,000 words on earlier this week, because I was like, oh, yeah, that would be a good bit there. and. Uh, also, at various points, I'm usually supposed to be editing something, and uh, but yeah, it's as long as... I usually have one thing that has the closest deadline that I'm like, I have to do at least 500 words a day on this, and then I and I have to get 1,000 words a day five days a week or the system collapses, but yeah.
0: <laughs> and then there's that cozy mystery you mentioned as well.
2: Oh, yes, yes. That was one of the ones I was putting words on a while ago, and uh, now I... I I think I've sold – yeah, I've sold that one. So uh, I, uh, it's now sort of on hold until it is time for me to work on it, and then <laughs> I will pull that out, and that will be the one with the deadline. That, uh, Yeah, it's – sometimes, I, you know, I will just be like, oh, yeah, this is the thing that goes here, and we'll pull things up and, and add to them. Yeah. So you, you, well, that works
1: actually – sorry. We're almost sorry. out of time. I just have one yeah. one thing to go yeah. back to what you were saying about – Really starting with characters, because one of the things that does distinguish a lot of your horror fiction from a lot of other horror fiction is that there's always at, at least one or two genuinely decent characters in them. Um, and in, in terms of the two latest novels, for example, the, the, the knight in Thornhedge is not a very good knight. He's kind of... he's I. I, I the minute I got through that, I thought, okay, this is kind of to a fairy tale knighthood, which Mendrick the Magician is in The Last Unicorn. He's okay. He's, he means well, and he's a genuinely decent guy. And going back to the house with good bones, you've got the neighbor across the street who turns out to be a genuinely decent guy, and there's never any horrible revelation about them. They're actually decent people uh, that you like
2: to write about. I I know a lot of decent people. I I don't know that many people who are sitting on, you know, some deep horrific secret or if they are they're they're hiding it very well from me. Uh we I, I have a hard time, and I realize it's it's very unfashionable, there was a whole thing for a while where, you know, you have to, if you can't read a thing with unlikable narrators, you are a, a shallow reader with no taste, and, you know, fine, that, but if I'm going to spend that much time with somebody, I want to not hate them, and, and particularly with horror, uh, since I write so much of it in first person, I have to be in their head, and... I want to. I want to be in the head of someone I like. If I'm going to spend, you know, six months like having to think like them, I I would prefer they not be a deeply awful person. And so, yeah, I do write a lot of, of nice people. I I spent a decade in Minnesota. Maybe that had something to do with it. But <laughs> there's just, I, it just the world has it, is-
1: become such a cliche in horror movies, especially where everything ends up with a kind of happy ending and the hero or heroine or main character or priest or whatever is has satisfied the mystery. And then in the last shot of the movie, he's looking at the camera and you realize the demon has possessed him now. And it's not a happy ending and he's not a decent character after all. And I've gotten to the point where I like a decent character to end the novel, still being a decent character. Maybe I'm getting old. Who knows?
2: It's I mean, if you are, I, I am apparently there with you. It's uh uh and and I I would say not all horrors like not all horror hashtag I mean Dean Koontz for example frequently has very decent people. It's just uh, you write, you know, pulled out of things in your life and I know a lot of people who are, you know, uh, petty and kind of crappy and uh and hard to deal with, but I know very few who if I was dangling off a cliff they wouldn't be oh my god and try to pull me back up. And it seems like a lot of people in horror novels would just be like, oh, whatever, let you fall off. It's like, that's not how most people are wired. Like (laughs) You might be be a terrible person to have a relationship with, but if you see someone dangling off a cliff, you're still like, oh my God, let me get a rope and pull you up. So yeah, Uh, I write what I know and I have great friends. I don't know. (laughs) It seems to be that way.
1: You seem to be a happy writer.
2: I, I am, for, except for these earbuds that keep falling out. Uh, <laughs> I am. I am generally yes. Uh, I. I think we 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 make way too much about angst fueling great art. Frankly, uh, people get a lot more done when they're not worried about where their health care, their next <laughs> yeah, meal is true. coming from. So uh, yeah, happiness is awesome. I am. I am. I am pro happiness.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it is indeed. On that note, though, as Gary had. Signaled we're past the top of our hour, so we should probably wind up. I should say that a house with good bones is out in the world right now. Thornhedge will be out in August and be followed by What Feasts at Night uh, in March mm-hmm. of next year. So there's a fair bit of Ursula Ur- Ursula Vernon slash T King to look forward to, and, and God willing, there will be London.
2: Paladin's Faith sometime this fall.
0: Excellent, <laughs> fantastic. But for now, Ursula Vernon, thank you so much for making time to talk to us today. It's been a genuine pleasure. It has.
2: It's been a delight. Thank you for having me. And
1: until next time, this has been the Cood Street Podcast.